0: But we want to start a little series for the next several weeks entitled Contemplating Christmas. Contemplating Christmas. And today we're going to talk about dealing with our doubts. Dealing with our doubts. And so we're opening up to uh, Luke chapter 1, and we'll be reading that uh, part of the Christmas story in just a little bit. Um, But I think many of us realize the longer we live life, Um, There are things in life that we experience, things that happen to us as a people, um, that sometimes just don't make sense. (laughs) Would you agree? Uh, The longer you're around, the more you just can't seem to wrap your mind around some of the things that you see going on, especially in society we live in today. It's just hard to understand Um, some of the things that happen to people, maybe that happen to yourself, Uh, Maybe you're asking questions. Um, I'm reminded of an illustration of a little boy who was just perplexed at his mother. He was young, and young enough to sit on her lap, but he noticed that after several weeks, her stomach was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Pretty soon, there was no room... (laughs) For this little guy to sit on his mother's lap anymore. So one day he just was beside himself and he just blurted it out. Mom, why is your belly so big? And so she thought for a moment, she had to explain to him that, well, she was going to have a baby. And she said, you know, your, your little, your new little sister is in there. He just looked at her, kind of startled. Kind of freaked him out. And so she calmed him down a little bit. And she thought, well, I'll make him feel a little bit better. And she said, this might feel, make you feel a little bit better. But once you were in there, too. And he just stopped and ran off to his room. Just blown away by this information. Didn't know what to do with it. And that night, when he was being tucked into bed by his father, was the normal procedure... He looked at his dad and he goes, Dad, very serious. He goes, I have two questions for you about mom. Two questions. Number one, why does she keep on eating little children? (laughs) And number two, how did I escape? (laughs) Now, we laugh at that, right? But it doesn't matter what age we are, maybe. It doesn't matter what we've experienced in life. Um, sometimes we just can't seem to get our mind wrapped around the information we're receiving. We don't understand why maybe things happen in a certain way or why we feel a certain way um, or why we see things happening to us personally or to our family. And there are problems with that at times. I mean, even when it comes to something as familiar to us as the Christmas story, There are things in this story that we look at as it unfolds, and some people, frankly, just can't believe it. They just can't wrap their mind around it. It's difficult. And as Christians, we're very familiar with it. But I think the things that make the Christmas story so special are also the same things that can make it very suspect. (laughs) Very suspect. Sometimes when we read the Christmas story, and if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, we just haphazardly read through it. We just assume it. We just believe it. And we go on and we don't even think about it. But when you really look at this story that we're about to read, part of it anyway, um, objectively, much of it feels more like... Fantasy Island than factual information. You can have that feeling. And so I want to contemplate as we go through this story. I mean, just think about it. You have an angel that appears out of nowhere and starts talking. You have a supernatural star. You have a pregnant virgin. Okay. You have a prophetic dream. You have a divine baby. And then you have these lowly shepherds who are like at the bottom of the rail and all of a sudden they become these heroic missionaries. You have this group of pagan astrologers who leave everything. They leave their homes. They leave their families. They quit their jobs. They walk months to find people that they've never met to a place they've never been to to worship a baby they will never see again. It's just a weird story. And when you put all the pieces of the Christmas story together, it really does, logically, in our minds, feel like a fantasy, if you look at it objectively. I mean, this is my probably 30-some year of preaching Christmas, 22 years here in this church. So this season is tough. Sometimes it's like, okay, what are you going to say different? I mean, you've been here twenty, twenty-two years preaching on the Christmas story every year. I mean, there's only be so many characters you can cover. There's only so many slants you can take. And we just assume that we know all the stuff about the Christmas story, and we don't look at it as objectively as some might. Um. There are people in the world today who love the Christmas story. They love Christmas. They love everything about it. But you know what? They do not believe it, literally. They love it, but they don't believe it. So here's the question I want to pose for us this morning. I want to ponder this. Is a person required to believe all the miracles of Christmas in order to follow the Messiah that celebrates Christmas? Is a person required to believe all the miracles in order, in the Christmas story, in order to follow the Messiah that celebrates Christmas? Or is it possible to believe that all of it just kind of happened maybe a little more naturally than what the Bible shares with us? And maybe this is just hyperbolic language. Is it okay to believe that maybe there were some other things that happened fundamentally and still believe in the Messiah? Well, I want to remind you, the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, he had some problems believing the accuracy of the Bible. As a matter of fact, you can go on Amazon and buy his Bible. I wouldn't recommend it. It's only 84 pages. Um, he had difficulties, especially with the Christmas account, reconciling what he would say are the fundamental principles of science and the supernatural miracles of Scripture. He had difficulties reconciling them in his mind. And so what he did when he was president, he took his Bible and he took something very sharp and he cut out every miracle. Just cut it out of the page. Cut out every mystery of Scripture that he didn't think was necessarily or he didn't believe was possible. And when he got it all done, it was about 84 pages. The Jefferson Bible. Cut down to what he believed to be the Word of God. Now, we would all say, that's ridiculous. You can't do that, and I would agree, right? But what that does is this. See, if you can't edit the Bible... If you can't cut it down, if you can't reduce it, or you can't add to it and make up your own version, then there's only really one alternative, is there not? Either you have to accept it as holy and entirely inspired, the Word of God, or you have to reject it entirely. You're not entitled to cut and paste with the Word of God, there's no in between. Because to try to find that in between, you end up like Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) And we don't want to do that. People treat the Bible as a buffet. They take the things that they like, and they reject the things that maybe doesn't feel too good to them. The things that they don't want. See, God says either it's totally inspired, or it's just plain fantasy. You can't have it either way. You can't have it both ways. You've got to pick one or the other. Well, let's go back to the, prom- the premise of our question. Does a person have to believe all the miracles of Christmas? By that I mean the virgin birth, the flying angels, the shepherds, all the miracles in the Christmas story. Or can we just believe it's just a little bit more normal than what we're told? And maybe it just got exaggerated over the years. Now, as believers, of course, we would say, what? No, we have to believe all of it. We have to believe the miracles, right? And I would agree with that. In order to belong to the Messiah and follow him, you have to take him at his word. So what do we do when questions arise? What do we do? Um, If you have a brain, then you're going to have some doubts. Would you agree with that? At least something's going to come up once in a while. I mean, for somebody to say, nope, I never doubt anything. (laughs) That's ridiculous. If you have a brain, that means that you're thinking, hopefully. And if you're thinking, you're going to raise some questions. Well, this morning, dealing with our doubts, what do we do with those questions as believers? What do we do with questions of the mind that tend to linger so long that they become doubts of the heart, what do we do with them? I don't think there may be any part of Scripture that brings up questions and doubts more than the Christmas story. We bring our questions, we bring our doubts into the light um, and begin to see the light over all of this. It serves us well as we move on to other parts of Scripture. Because if you can't believe the miracles of Christmas, you definitely can't believe the miracles of the cross. Both of those come from the same God. It's God saying, I'm the God of Christmas, and I'm the God of the cross. Both of those are the same. It takes both of these, of course, to bring someone to Christ, to salvation, to celebrate salvation that he offers us. And so, with that, turn to Luke chapter 1. And I want to ask you to stand in honor of God's word. Just going to read several verses here, beginning in verse 26. And then you can have a seat when we're done, after we pray. But Luke chapter 1, verse 26, says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I would be greatly troubled too if an angel approached me. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, (laughs) since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High, I will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it Be to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. Father, we ask you to bless our time together in your word. Pray that you'd bless the words of the written page to our hearts and our minds. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may have a seat. See, when it comes to doubts, beloved, God does not expect us to check our brain at the door. The brain that he gave us. He he doesn't expect us just to check our brains at the door. But what are we to do when questions arise? What are we to do when doubts come up? When we start seeing miraculous things, when we start looking into the mysterious mysteries of God, when we begin to see things that we cannot explain, nor do we fully understand. What do we do with those? I mean, do you just glaze over them, gloss over them, bury them? Well, I want to share three thoughts with you this morning. What do we do with the mysterious and the miraculous of the Christmas story? And then even as it branches out to other parts of the rest of Scripture. Three thoughts, first of all, when it comes to the mysterious and the miraculous in Scripture. First of all, number one, believing is essential. Believing is essential. See, Christianity presupposes miracles. Therefore, as a Christian, God requires, and by the way, mandates, that we believe in miracles. It's not an option. Christians presupposes, Christianity presupposes miracles. Therefore, as a Christian, it's mandatory that we believe in miracles. Um, would you agree with me when I say that God, being God, has reserved the right to do what he wants, whenever he wants. He's sovereign, right? God doesn't stop and ask us for permission. (laughs) He doesn't need to. He doesn't wait for our approval. Nor does he limit his doings or his miracles or his goings and his thinking to appease us. He doesn't limit himself to our level of understanding, in other words. God doesn't come down to earth and say, okay, well, you know, I I know you're not going to understand this, so I can't do it that way. I've got to figure out a different way. I'm here to help you figure out who I am, and I'm going to check with you before I do anything to make sure that you understand it first. That's not the God we serve. He doesn't give us all the information, does he? God reserves the right to do what he wants, when he wants, and to say the things he wants, even when we don't understand it. Even when we can't comprehend it or even endorse it, even more importantly. Do you realize that God does things that you'll never endorse? I mean, have you ever looked at some of the things God does and said, man, if I was God, I'd never do it that way. I can think of a million things. See, God reserves the right to do things that we don't understand, comprehend, or endorse. That's the nature of being God. And yet, though you don't understand everything, he does understand everything, and everything he says, he does require you to believe it, even though you don't understand it. Even though you don't fully comprehend and understand what God may be doing, God requires, as a mandate, that you wholeheartedly believe it. And we see this in the Christmas story. Are you saying that every person has to be a miracle believer in order to be a Christ follower? Let me think. Yes. Yes. You can't be a follower of Christ if you don't believe in the miraculous impossible every person has to be a miracle believer in order to be a follower of Christ and some people say well you know I'm just more logical I'm more rational I'm more intellectual kind of person we've all heard the phrase they're just too what smart for their own good right we hear that a lot they're just so smart, they can't believe. It's as if the intellect given to them by God is a curse rather than a blessing. <laughs> like, poor guy, he's just so smart, he'll never become a Christian. say, I don't believe that. I don't believe that's true. Here's the good news. If you're one of those people who say, you know what, the miraculous, the supernatural, the mysterious, all those things, I really struggle in my heart and in my mind to believe that because I'm logical, because I'm intellectual, I'm rational. I have some really, really good news for you. Write this down because we don't have to because it's in your outline. Your believing capacity is not limited by your thinking ability. Your believing capacity is not limited by your thinking ability thereby not reducing your personal, what? Responsibility. In other words, God has made you, and he has made me, and he has made every person in the world in a way that our heart can believe in things that are amazing. That our hearts can believe far more than our mind could ever even understand or comprehend. That's how God created us. God has given you the capability, every single one of us, to believe far more than we can ever understand. I mean, if you start thinking of things you don't fully understand, I mean, the list could go on and on, depending on who you are, right? <laughs> the other day, I was swapping out some um, outlets in the living room. I had a painter come in and paint some, so I was replacing some outlets, and, and my wife was in the kitchen, and... And, you know, you're supposed to turn, go out and turn the breaker off, right? Well, you know, I've been doing this for years, so I know how to do this. And I made it through like two or three of them. And I thought, okay, one of these is going to zap me. I just know it's going to happen, right? Which it did. <laughs> and I heard my wife, are you okay in there? <laughs> you know, she probably heard me go, whoa. <laughs> but you know what? I don't fully understand electricity. I mean, I... I understand enough to be dangerous, okay? But I don't fully understand electricity, how it works. It's beyond my capability of understanding. But you know what? I'm not going to sit in the dark until I understand it. That wouldn't make any sense. I mean, it doesn't matter how large the universe is, even down to the, or how small, even down to the smallest little atom, there are mysteries, there are miracles that we do not understand. Yet we fully believe. You know why? Because God has given every single person the capacity to believe far beyond their mental capacity of understanding. And because of that, because every person can believe with their heart that which they don't understand with their mind, guess what? God holds us accountable, spiritually speaking. And because of this capacity, by the grace of God, I mean, aren't you glad that you can believe more than your mind can understand? I mean, if that were not true, you'd probably never drive over a bridge. Think about it. You look at a bridge, you look at a gold gate bridge, it's like, wow. Is that just going to stand up there by itself? And then you put all the cars on it on top of that? It's like, wow. these cables holding it together? I don't completely understand how that works. But I don't even think about driving over the gold gate bridge. I mean, if God didn't give you the ability to believe more than your mind can understand, you would never get on an airplane, for goodness sakes. (laughs) Some of you are going, yeah, I'm never going to get on an airplane anyway. But, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Or a helicopter. Crazy things. Well, what's happening? You're just displaying faith and demonstrating your belief in something. Your mind, if you got real logical, would never let you go into a restaurant and eat food. Think of all the assumptions you're making. You don't know what's going on behind those walls. You don't know who's back there cooking your food. I mean, you believe that they're going to take great care of your food and it's going to come out and it's going to taste wonderful. But we've all heard the stories, right? Don't ever talk to someone who inspects restaurants. It would just ruin your dining experience forever forever. See, we can go on and on with things that we know in our mind that we don't understand, that we can't logically explain, but you know what? We believe to be true. And because of that, God does hold us accountable, spiritually speaking, for for things he knows we will never fully understand. But he requires us to wholeheartedly believe. Maybe one of the greatest examples of this is all the way back on the first pages of Scripture. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 2, God speaks to Adam and Eve in a way that goes way over their head. Now remember, they are created, they were the first creation, Adam and Eve. In verse 17 of Genesis chapter 2, it says, but of the tree... Of the knowledge of good and evil, you can have anything you want. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Some people say, well, they they weren't allowed to eat the apple. We don't know what it was. It could have been a pomegranate. We have the slightest idea what kind of fruit it was. But they weren't allowed to eat it. And then God tells them this. For in that day that you eat of it, what does it say? You shall surely die. Now, just put yourself in Adam and Eve's position. They had zero clue of what it meant to die. Zero. Death had not entered into the world yet. There was no curse. They had not experienced anything dying. They hadn't seen death. They had no concept of death. They didn't know what that meant when God said, you shall surely die. And yet God expected them to believe it. And we know that to be true because later on Eve begins to share her own responsibility in this of believing that which God had said. Remember the snake comes up. Hey, Eve, what about this? On this tree, it looks so good. I'm sure it tastes so good. Just take a little bite. And what does she say at first? She says, sorry, Mr. Snake, can't do that. Well, why not? What's her answer? Because God said, if we eat of that, when we eat of that, we will surely die. She believes something in her heart that she does not fully comprehend and understand with her mind. Now, did it come to fruition Did what God tell Eve prove to be true? Everything happened exactly the way God said it would. God said, if you eat, you will die. Even though they didn't understand it, he held them accountable for it because he gave them a heart that can believe that which the mind cannot understand. Now, back to the Christmas narrative. Did you expect Mary, (laughs) think of Mary, young virgin woman, to mentally understand and comprehend everything that was going on around her? You think she was, oh, yeah, this is just another normal day. Did God expect her to understand where the angel came from or how the angel spoke to her? And that she could understand or, or even comprehend why God chose her for this amazing task out of all the other women on the face of the earth. Why would he choose her? How could she understand that? Did she mentally grasp what it meant that Jesus would save his people from their sins? See, she didn't understand a lot of things happening all around her. And yet what? And yet she did believe. We know that she responded in belief because obedience demonstrates belief. Obedience demonstrates belief. As we obey, what are we doing? We're demonstrating belief in our hearts. That's why when you share the gospel with someone, it's not good enough for them just to say, yeah, 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 I believe it. What do they have to do? They're called to what? Obey the gospel. They're called to lay down their life and surrender it to Christ. Well, how could she do this? I mean, if an angel showed up and began to talk to us, I, mean, I it might be a little hard to believe at first. It would be difficult. How was she able to believe even when she didn't understand what was going on? Well, like I said, because her believing capacity was greater than her thinking ability. And therefore, she was personally responsible for what God told her to do. So let's bring this down to a little more practical for us today. Are there any miracles in the Bible that we must believe in? In other words, mandated miracles that you have to believe in to be someone who follows Christ. To be a Christian, to be someone who trusts in Christ for your salvation. Are there any miracles that you have to believe in? Well, there's more than these, but we're just going to cover these three. And these are non-negotiables, by the way. The first one is believing the miracle of creation. Believing the miracle of creation. You say, well, isn't that non-essential? No, that's, that's a non-negotiable. Hebrews 11, verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was made out of things that are in, that are, uh, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It's made out of what's invisible. And it says, By faith we understand this. It didn't happen with a big bang. It didn't happen with something else they dream up in the scientific world. This is the Word of God. The Bible says that God spoke it and it happened. Now, as believers, what do we do? We believe that, hopefully, by faith. We understand that by faith. We not may not even comprehend it, but we believe it. It's not with our minds, but with our hearts. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. See, believing that God is the invisible designer, the creator of everything visible, is absolutely mandatory. It's a non-negotiable for someone who is going to follow Christ. If you can believe the very first verse of the Bible, (laughs) the rest of it's a piece of cake. In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. You don't need to know Hebrew. You don't need to do a word study. It's very simple. The Bible doesn't explain God. The Bible what? Assumes God. The Bible assumes God. It doesn't say, well, let me tell you now where this God came from. No. It just assumes. It says when time began, guess what? God. Why? Because he created time. He created everything. When the world all came into being, it was because God was there and he did it. Period. So if you have trouble with the first verse of the Bible, you're definitely going to have a lot of trouble with the rest of the Bible. If you have trouble with creation, you're going to have trouble with the cross. Because the very same God who in Genesis 1-1 created the world is the very same God in John John three sixteen who loved the world. So if you can't believe the first verse, then you're never going to to believe that special verse of the gospel in John 3.16. Those two absolutely go together. And so God says, you are going to have to believe this with your heart, right? Even though you can't fully grasp it with your mind. I mean, can you imagine creating something out of nothing? I mean, you always need something to start with, right? I mean, some of you are pretty creative, and you've done some pretty neat things, handiwork and all that, but you start with something. And there's, a, there's a joke of the, the atheist club that, that they were just having a hard time understanding creation, and so they were poking fun at God. It says the group of scientists, they were fed up, and they decided to challenge God to a, a human-making contest, thinking that somehow they could do it. Better than God. And they thought they had it all figured out with all their DNA and science and all this stuff. And God basically at the challenge said to the scientists, well, go ahead. You guys go first. I'll watch. And the group of scientists bent over to scoop up some dirt to start their project. And he said, hey, wait a minute. That's my dirt. Get your own. (laughs) See, we forget how basic Creation is to what we believe. So you have to believe in creation. Secondly, believing in miracles, the miracle of the incarnation is a non-negotiable. So we have creation, we have the incarnation. Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, "...for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Luke 2.11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is God incarnate. That word, a Latin phrase, means God what? In the flesh. God incarnate. I mean, think about it. Have you ever had, uh, well, here we have carne asada a lot of times, right? But remember the the chili they had? Chili, what? Con- carne well carne is what carne is meat what does incarnation mean it means god with meat on god with flesh on it's kind of a redneck way of teaching the incarnation but hopefully you you'll remember that god in the flesh god with meat on the bones that's what the incarnation literally means And every person who is going to follow Christ, who is going to submit themselves to the gospel and and trust that God did through Jesus for them what they could not do for themselves, that in Christ, he lived a perfect life on our behalf. In Christ, he satisfied the law on our behalf. He died on the cross for our behalf. He satisfied the wrath of God for our sin on our behalf. And then he rose from the dead. And now he gives new life to us. You have to believe. It's non-negotiable that Jesus is both God, fully God, fully man. 100%, 100%. Doesn't make sense. Mathematically, I understand that. But it's so important. And usually around Christmas time somewhere we have a message on this because it is so important. Because people in the world say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you believe Jesus is God or not. You know, you don't want to get into the the theology of him being fully man and fully God. It does matter. It matters to the nth degree. Without that truth, guess what? There is no gospel. There is no good news. Christ had to be fully God and fully man for this reason. That human beings, all of us, are what? We're imperfect. The Bible says what? We've all sinned, right? We've all fallen short of God's glory. The Bible says that there is none perfect, none righteous, no, not one. And so for Jesus to live a flawless, sinless life, he had to be God. There's no way a human... Just a human could do it. Unless you're God, you can never be perfect. You can never, ever be sinless. But on the other hand, for Jesus to die, because God can't die the last time I checked, guess what? He had to become human. He had to take on a body. He had to be fully human so that he could die. See, as God, he could be our savior living a perfect, flawless life. As a human, he could be our substitute. And you need both. You can't have one without the other. You don't have the gospel. If you try to take one of those away, you have major problems. If Jesus is only man, he could die, but he couldn't die in our place. <laughs> and if he's only God, well, then God cannot die. And he can not be our substitute. Those two are absolutely imperative. And I know we talk about this a lot, but it's because the world doesn't. Churches don't emphasize these things. We need to be able to, in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own understanding, understand that we won't always understand everything. But we have the Capability of believing with the heart far beyond what? What our minds can understand. And God has reserved the right to be able to do that. God says, right, my ways are not your ways. (laughs) My thoughts are not your thoughts. They're higher than yours. I don't have to bow down to your logical thinking. Thirdly, not just creation and incarnation, but resurrection. Believing in the miracle of the resurrection is a non-negotiable. A non-negotiable. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, what? God raised him from the dead. What will happen? You will be saved. If you confess. If you believe. That's your part. Now, yeah, it's given to you by the grace of God. But our salvation is not some passive thing that God just throws in our lap so if there's no faith in the resurrection then guess what there's no hope of salvation i was thinking this this past week do you do you realize that when we get to heaven there's nobody that's going to get to heaven when they get there and they see jesus and jesus is standing there in all his glory they're not going to go whoa dude you're alive I thought you bit the bullet, man. I thought that the cross was it. No. No. Every soul that enters heaven will know that he is alive. No one will be stunned to see Jesus in heaven. It's required to believe that God raised him from the dead. That's what Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised, verse 12, from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ is raised, Paul says. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And guess what? Your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, he says, is futile. It's worthless. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no hope for them. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. See, none of us can mentally understand the fine details exactly how this resurrection thing happened. I saw an article one time in a magazine. It said 25% of Christians do not believe in the resurrection. Lie. False news. 100% false. Why? Because to be a Christian, in order to become a Christian, in order to be a follower of Christ and trust the gospel to be saved, you have to believe in the resurrection. Now, I could see if it said 25% of what? Professed Christians. That would make sense. There's a lot of people that profess Christ that truly are not saved. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you're not a Christian. You can't be, period. So when it comes to these mysterious, miraculous things in Scripture, first of all, believing is essential. Secondly, doubting is normal. Doubting is normal. Look back at Luke, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, Luke 1, 34, what did she say when when all this went down? She said, how will this be? I'm going to have a what? No, you don't understand. I'm still a virgin, she says. See, some people say they try they they struggle in their faith and they truly do they they really struggle in their faith some people ask me if i was a true believer would i ever doubt because i have lots of doubts well did mary doubt who doubted the the virgin birth the very first thing <laughs> the virgin She was told this information. She said, ah, wait a minute. How can this be? That's doubt. The one God chose out of everyone. She's like, hey, wait a minute. This can't be true. There's no way. (laughs) She says, how can this be? She's going, look, I've been to health class. I've been to biology class. I know these things. I've never known a man. I've never been sexually intimate with a man. And I know that's how children come about. So obviously, Mr. Angel, you got the wrong house. Maybe it's the one next door. The GPS is off. Something's gone wrong here. Mary's initial reaction was doubt. Why? Because doubting is normal when you have a brain. Doubting is normal when you have a brain. When you get hit with things that you have either learned otherwise or seen otherwise or experienced otherwise. When you have a brain, doubting is normal when you come up against things like that. Tim Keller, a theologian, said this. I like this quote. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent indifferent to ask questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic a person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to their own doubts which should only be discarded after long reflection. So doubt is part of life. Doubt is normal. Unbelief, though, is the opposite of faith, not doubt. See, we get them mixed up. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is. The person who never doubts anything, has only half believed. <laughs> they don't have full belief. Doubts happen and they're normal because what? We have a brain. Doubts happen because we're in a spiritual war and we're dealing with a deceptive evil enemy and he tells us unbelievable lies. Doubts are normal because while we are fully justified, we're not fully what? Sanctified. In other words, guess what? God's not done with us yet. He's still working on us. He's not done with our lives and our minds. He's not done with growing us up into the image of Christ. So part of becoming a growing disciple in Christ is, you know what? I'm doubting. But I'm also pursuing. I'm pursuing. See, there are some things that I have i have doubts that I struggle with. We all do. And because he's still growing me up to fully understand what those things mean, it's okay. We need those things in our lives. Now there are some doubts that are problems. I call them lazy doubts. Lazy doubts that remain long. And what happens is lazy doubts become a foundation for strong unbelief. Here's the real problem. The enemy of faith is not doubt. It's unbelief. That's the enemy of faith. I mean, who is the most notorious doubter we have in the Bible? Doubting what? Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. Poor guy. Notice we call him that. The Bible doesn't call him that. Jesus didn't call him that. We call him that. I mean, here's this guy. He hears Jesus is alive. He didn't see him yet. He wasn't around. But he saw him die on the cross. He saw him buried. And so when that truth that Jesus was alive came across his ears, it kind of butted up against his doubt because of the experience that he saw. Wait a minute. I saw him die. I saw him go to the grave. It's... it's, He's dead, not alive. And he says, I'm not going to be able to believe that until what? Till I see it and I touch it. What's amazing is this. Listen, Jesus gives every person what they need. Not to always understand and comprehend everything. But he gives them what they need to what to believe. He gives them what they need to believe. See, there's a lot of people who are looking for answers that they can answer with their own minds. God is not going to give you something that you can understand. but He's given you everything you need to believe. So, what does Jesus do with Thomas? Jesus goes right over to Thomas. Hey, feel this. Check this out. I mean, Thomas is probably, whoa, 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 enough information, man. Okay, I get it. To the point where he says, What? My Lord and my God. He was completely convinced, he didn't understand how it all happened. But I'm telling you, he believed, and guess what? Jesus expected him to believe. He held him accountable to believe. Think back with me when you were saved, if you can, the day you were saved. Maybe you're in a room like this where somebody was preaching a message, who knows? But I've heard this story many times from people when they're telling their testimony. Yeah, I was sitting in church. What was he preaching? I don't have a clue. I don't even know what the guy was saying. I have no idea. But you know what? All I know is that God grabbed a hold of me. And it was kind of like just a mind-blowing experience. And I knew that he was speaking to me in that moment. And I knew that I was lost. And that if I died in that moment, I would be in hell forever. I don't know how I knew it, but I just knew it. I was convinced. But in that moment, I believed that what? Christ was and could be my Savior. You know why those things happen? Because you had doubted, you doubted, you had doubted. And then all of a sudden, what happened? God meets you with your doubt. <laughs> And he, he meets you with exactly what you need to believe. Because your capacity to believe exceeds, is not limited to your ability to understand. Many times, those who believe in just what they see and what they feel, what they can touch, what do they end up? They end up disqualifying themselves. Because there's no transformation. There's no faith needed. That's why you see so many people in the, even in the charismatic movement who are so much into the touchy and feely and, and all that and the miraculous and they see all this stuff, they need all that. It's like they've got to get their fix every week. But you hear a lot of them falling by the wayside. So you know, so long you can keep that stuff up. See, he requires us To get and go after all that we can understand. But always remember, believing is going to always be past us, beyond us. It's going to be something that we don't understand. Doubt is necessary oftentimes to get us to that point. That's why God allows doubts in our lives. He gets us to doubting so that we start thinking about things and then we start what? We start pursuing. We start pursuing truth. Doubt says, you know what? I don't understand all of this. So I, I need to do my homework. I'm going to go find some of these things out. Unbelief just says, "Oh, that's not true. No research. Yeah, I talk to a lot of people who don't believe the Bible. They never read the Bible. Never read it. Doubt pursues. I'm going to check this out. What does unbelief do? Unbelief just tosses it out. I'm never going to believe that. Doubt is a, has a person... It is still open-minded. Unbelief, unfortunately, grips a person's heart that is closed-minded. They're done. They have the answer they want, and they don't want to hear anything else. See, doubt forces us to go after the questions that we still have. There's one thing, before we move on, I want you to understand the lingering doubt, the lingering doubt that does not drive you to answers the lazy doubt I call it it just hangs around that lazy doubt leads to strong unbelief lingering doubt lends itself to strong unbelief what's the real difference in practical terms we just got done with Thanksgiving dinner read a little story of a mom who never cooked Thanksgiving dinner for her family. They always went out to eat or they went to a relative's home. Um, She wasn't known as a great cook. But family, for a variety of reasons, couldn't get together. So she thought, well, for the first time, she's going to have a hand at cooking Thanksgiving dinner. And it was just her immediate family. And so She wasn't known for her culinary skills at all, but she wanted to do this for her family. And so, after the food was cooked on Thanksgiving Day, she had everybody gather around the table in the dining room, and they're all sitting there. And she comes out, and she says, Well, I'm about ready to bring all the food out. It's all done. I'm I'm, I'm about ready to bring the food out. You know that I'm not the greatest cook in the world. You understand that, family. And you know that there's a possibility that this might not turn out like grandma's Thanksgiving. But let me tell you one thing. When I come out here and I put the food on this table and it doesn't taste good. I don't want to hear a word. Not a word. We'll just get in the car and we'll go to the restaurant like we've always done. So she goes back in the kitchen, she's getting the food ready and she brings it out. She brings the turkey out first. And when she comes out, her family, entire family, is standing by the door with their coats on. <laughs> They're ready to go. That's unbelief. <laughs> that's not doubt, that's unbelief. See, that is unbelief. And there are people who come to the Christmas story. They come to the gospel. They come to the Bible. They come to the nature and characteristics and attributes of God. And they say, well, that can't be true because I can't understand it. And I can't rationalize my way through it. And I can't put it in my little test tube in the laboratory. And it goes beyond what I understand. So I'm I'm not going to accept it. That's unbelief. When we're no longer pursuing that lingering doubt. That's the time that it turns into strong unbelief. But here's the good news. It's always good news. The good news is this. That which was once strongly doubted, that which was once strongly doubted, can also, by the grace of God, become that which is strongly believed. It's happened to every one of us who's a believer here today. You see it in the life of the Apostle Paul. He was adamantly opposed to, To Christianity and to Christ. To the degree that he was out murdering Christians. That's pretty radical. And then God did something amazing in his life. And that which he strongly doubted became what? That which he strongly believed. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. I love what another translation says. It says, We are often troubled but not crushed, sometimes in doubt, but never in despair. There are many enemies, but we are never without a friend. And though badly hurt at times, we are not destroyed. See, no truth is so strongly believed than that which you once doubted. You know, that's what Paul teaches us. When we have doubts, when we have struggles, how do we deal with them? Well, what does he do? He goes back to what he knows he believes. Some of you may know this hymn. It's entitled, I Know Whom I've Believed. Remember that hymn? It's taken out of Second Timothy 1.12, For I have known what I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard it Until that day. It's interesting because the lyrics to the song say, the first verse says, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he has made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. And then the chorus says this I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. It was written by Major Daniel Webster Whittle. He was named after Daniel Webster, the Christian who came up with the dictionary, the statesman. He was born November 22, 1840 in Massachusetts. And his mother was said to be a devout believer, godly woman. She had three sons, and she brought them up with Christian principles. And Daniel, as a teenager, worked at the Wells Fargo Bank, into his early twenties, and he was not a, a wicked man at first. On the contrary, he was quite religious. He he surrendered his life to the Lord one night while he was working at the the bank, being the night watchman. He went into the vault. He got down on his knees. He surrendered his life for the heavenly Father to use however He would. He became a Sunday school superintendent. The great tabernacle in Chicago. There he met his wife and he got married. He joined the army. He shipped out the next day. He worked in the army in the Civil War. He became a second lieutenant. In the summer of um, 1862, the Civil War began to intensify and his unit was sent down to the south. And He talks about his his departure when he left to go in the military. He says, My dear mother was a devout Christian and parted from me with many a tear and followed me with many a prayer. She had placed a New Testament in the pocket of my haversack that she had arranged for me. Well, he rose to the rank of major. He lost an arm in the, the war. He became a prisoner of war. And while POW, with all the time on his hands, he began to read through the scriptures. And in the POW camp, there was a nurse who was caring for a um, a young boy who was dying. And they, they looked at Major Widow and they thought, well, this guy must be a Christian. And so they the nurse went and, and begged this man um, to come and to, to maybe hold this dying boy's hand and maybe pray for him during his time of need. And... The nurse told Major Whittle that he had, that, that uh, or Major Whittle told the nurse, look, I'm I'm a wicked man. I can't do that. I can't pray for somebody else. And uh, he said, I'm too wicked for that. I have too many sins in my life. (laughs) And the nurse kind of convinced him, and so he, he ended up going into this young man's Room and held his hand and here's what he prayed he says I dropped on my knees and held the boy's hand in mine in a few broken words I confessed my sins and asked Christ to forgive me I believe right there that he did forgive me I then prayed earnestly for the boy he became quiet and pressed my hand as I prayed and pleaded God's promises when I arose from my knees he was dead a look of peace had come over his troubled face And I cannot but believe that God who used him to bring me to the Savior used me to lead him to trust Christ's precious blood and find pardon. I hope to meet him in heaven. Ten years later, he joined with Dwight L. Moody in evangelism outreaches, and he wrote that hymn. He also wrote 200 other hymns. Um many which we know. See, he he understood that Christ gives you what you need when you need to believe. Not necessarily to understand, but to believe. And you have to understand this, because that's the filter we should pass all these miracles and, and these miraculous things through. The capacity to believe is far greater than your ability to think, and God is going to hold us all accountable Because we can believe it. And the last point here. Not only believing and doubting. Believing is essential. Doubting is normal. Quickly surrendering is personal. Think about it. When the angel shows up. And has this conversation with Mary. She can't depend on Joseph's faith. She didn't say okay you know what. This is an interesting thing. But let me go check with my hubby first. And I'll get back with you. She couldn't do that. She couldn't go ask mom and dad. About their convictions or this. She didn't even depend on her community of faith. The angel comes to her and says, Mary, this is what God has. This is what God has done. What say you, Mary? Now, her immediate reaction was doubt, right? I don't think this can be true. I don't know how it could be true. What moved Mary from doubt to belief and obedience? At least two things. One in particular was the angel included in the story that Elizabeth is pregnant. Now, this is one who's way beyond bearing years. one who wanted a child for a long time, and suddenly she was pregnant when no one ever thought she would be pregnant. It was amazing. So I'm sure that helped Mary with some information, but I think most of all, it was what the angel said in verse 37. This was what moved her from Doubt to belief in obedience, for nothing will be impossible with God. When you look at why Mary doubted and why she somewhat argued about being a pregnant virgin, I mean, it kind of makes sense. She has a brain. How can this be? I haven't seen, I haven't been with a man. I know how this works. But notice it says, how can this be since I haven't known a man? Mary had an eye problem. (laughs) She had an eye problem. And when we doubt the miraculous in the mysterious workings of God and what God has said to be true, it's because we have an eye problem. The way that we begin to open up and say, you know what? This is true. That we move from our eye problem to this book, the Bible, and we understand that, what, with God, what's impossible? Nothing. Nothing. See, Mary suddenly went from her limited potential and her limited abilities and her limited understanding to limitless potential with God. Why? Because she got her eyes off herself and on him. And that's why she was able to say, hey, I'm the servant. Let it be. Let it be, Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What's she saying here? She's saying, God, you're not my servant. You're not here to serve me. I'm here to serve you. I'm your servant. I don't use you, God, to get what I want. You use me. I don't understand everything that's going on here. But Mary says, do whatever you want with me. That's amazing. See, God didn't hold her accountable to know everything and understand and comprehend everything. But she was fully accountable for what he did and believing that which was true psalm 77 psalm of asaph verse 14 it says you are the god who works wonders you have made known your might among the peoples many of you probably watched cs lewis's chronicles of narnia or you know, read the book at least Not seen the movie and there's one scene that's very gripping Lucy sees Aslan, the lion. Aslan represents Christ the king. He's the lion, the tribe of Judah. And Lucy sees Aslan in this scene. And she's seen him before. It's not the first time she's seen him. But this time when she sees him, she looks at Aslan and she says, Wow, Aslan, you've gotten bigger. And Aslan the lion says, Oh, oh, my child, I haven't gotten bigger. You've gotten older. You've gotten bigger. Do you ever notice when we get bigger, everything in our childhood seems smaller? Do you ever go back to your elementary school? Like, how do we even walk down these halls? They're so tiny. These tiny little windows, tiny little toilets so weird. But you didn't think about that when you were there as an elementary student. See, he says, no, 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 you've gotten bigger and you've gotten bigger because you've gotten bigger. I look bigger as well. See, when you grow in your faith, when when God grows you as a disciple and you begin to understand more and more that he can do anything at any time to anyone for anyone, that there's literally nothing that's impossible for God. When he begins to show you this, and, he be, and you begin to believe that, suddenly, as you grow and you get bigger, you know what happens? God appears a lot bigger, too. You grow as a disciple, and get God gets bigger as your God in our own eyes. I mean, obviously, he stays the same. He doesn't change. But to us, hey, the limits are off. I just wonder this morning, maybe today. Maybe today is the day that you say, you know what? I'm going to surrender. I'm going to believe beyond what I can understand. I'm just going to surrender to you, God. You're the God of the impossible. I mean, it may be for something as important as salvation. You don't maybe mentally understand everything, but today you just know that you know that you you need to put your faith and trust in Christ. Maybe it's a struggle you're going through or a problem or a financial dealing or whatever. Moving away or a job or an election. (laughs) And you just can't understand what God is going to do or how he's going to do it. What's he saying to us? He's saying... Nothing, nothing is impossible with me. Believe what you, beyond what you can understand. Believe beyond what you can understand. That's what he's calling us to do. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that our faith in you is just that, it's faith. We're not required to believe everything um, That we don't uh, totally, that we're not going to completely comprehend everything that we believe. But we are required to believe it. Lord, there are many things we don't comprehend about you. How can you choose us before the foundation of the world and yet call us to believe in you at a point in time? And put our faith and trust in you as our Savior. You're the sovereign God of the universe, and yet you ask us to come to you and pray and bring our request to you. Lord, there's so many things we we can't comprehend about you, but we do understand that we have sinned and we've fallen short of your glory and that you've made a path for redemption. You've made a path for salvation. You've made a way for us to come back to the God who created us in faith, in grace, believing, That you will forgive us based on the work of Christ. It's basically surrendering your life to the Savior. Giving up and letting God have his way. That's what he requires of us. So, Father, we pray for each heart that's represented here. I pray that you would do your work as only you can. Help them to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Give me this new life that is spoken of in the New Testament by your son. And for believers, I just pray that we would fight against becoming familiar with the Christmas story. That we would hold on to that wonder and that excitement. Because that's what you desire us to do. That you, the God of all creation, sent your son to this lowly earth, to become a man, for the express purpose of dying on a cross, to pay for the sins of all those who would ever put their faith or trust in you. Lord, we thank you for that. And we, we pray that this Christmas season would be one that reflects your glory, your majesty, that it would exalt Christ and not the world. We thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.